Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, Joshua chapters 12 and 13. Well, today we enter a decidedly different section of the book of Joshua than what we've studied up to this point. Now, the land has to a degree, a sufficient degree, let's put it that way, been conquered. And so now it's time to settle it. It's time to turn the implements of war into plowshares. And and for me, frankly, this is a difficult section because I, I have strained to find the theological value in what on the surface seems to be little more than several consecutive chapters that centers primarily on geography and tribal boundaries. Yet, because of the fundamental God patterns that the Lord has established for us in the Torah, when we can get beyond, or maybe it's beneath, these long, tedious lists of ancient cities and rivers and mountains and kings, suddenly the reasons for their presence in the Holy Scriptures starts to surface. What we're going to see develop in the next few chapters is that despite the general statement that the Bible pronounces in many places in Joshua that Joshua conquered all the land, in fact, he did not. And this is but one example of why after our first coming to belief in the God of Israel and his Messiah Yeshua, that we must move rapidly as possible beyond our childlike belief and highly simplified doctrines and into a much greater maturity and understanding by diligently studying God's word from the beginning. That is, the Bible is full of generalizations that were but cultural, cultural, Hebrew cultural, in their nature and in their form. But then as we read closer, we find that those generalizations have caveats and nuances. The Hebrew way in the Holy Scripture seems to be that, it, that a broad generalization is pronounced first, And then afterwards, the details that shape its edges are added. If we stop studying and become satisfied with the generalizations, then we only get part of the truth, and thus we have a much harder time grasping what follows it. In a certain sense, everything that happens from this point forward in the remainder of the Bible Old and then New Testaments is about the consequences of Joshua and the Israelites and their descendants failing to fully conquer the promised land. I've stated on numerous occasions that this intractable Middle East we see today is the direct result of Israel's inability to follow through with the conquering of Canaan. Yet in our era, we can now also see in ways more visible that at any time since the time of Yeshua, 
that the failures of Joshua and those Israeli leaders who followed him have also led to a permanent state of confusion and conflict that seems to have gripped the entire globe. So the key to our study now of the remaining chapters of Joshua is to approach it from the right angle. And that angle is all wrapped up in recognizing the consequences of incomplete victory. That all of God's people will suffer until Messiah comes. Now to set the tone for today's lesson, open up your Bibles to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you've got the complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1431. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Begins this way. We're going to read uh, 13 verses in it. Starting with verse 1. For brothers, I don't want you to miss the significance of what happened to our fathers. All of them were guided by the pillar of cloud and they all passed through the sea. And in connection with the cloud and with the sea, they all immersed themselves into Moshe, into Moses. And also they they all ate the same food from the Spirit. And they all drank the same drink from the Spirit, for they drank from a Spirit-sent rock which followed them. And that rock was the Messiah. Yet with the majority of them, God wasn't pleased. So their bodies were strewn across the desert. Now these things took place as prefigurative historical events warning us not to set our hearts on the evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As the Tanakh puts it, the people sat down to eat and drink, then they got up to indulge in revelry. And let us not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, with the consequence that 23,000 died in a single day. Let us not put the Messiah to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as prefigurative historical events, and they were written down as a warning to us who are living in the Acharit Hayamin, the world to come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he is standing up be careful not to fall, No temptation has seized you beyond what people normally experience. And God can be trusted not to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. On the contrary, along with the temptation, He'll also provide the way out so that you'll be able to endure. Paul says that he and his generation are living out what was started in the previous generations. Or as he puts it, what happened to our fathers? And he says in verse 6 
that what went on, especially with Moses in the Exodus and then the entering into the promised land was prefigurative of what the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ can expect. And that is because it's all connected. Now that we've heard from Paul on the subject, I can do no better than to paraphrase Richard Hess, who says this about this section of Joshua that we're about to enter. He says, For the believer, Israel's inability to fully and completely conquer all of the promised land looks ahead to our present-day inability to enjoy the fullest favor of God's available blessings in this life. Christians are not perfect, even though we are called to display perfect holiness. We live in this impossible tension between the rewards of a life lived as directed by the Holy Spirit of God, and these rewards are available here and now, and our own failures that effectively block our access to these same rewards that we so desperately seek. This maddening paradox of the believer's life, sadly, has no resolution in our current state of being or in this world as it currently exists. But we do have the promise of God's continual presence in the life of the believer that both allows us to receive forgiveness for our failures and the power to live a life of obedience to the Lord. With that, with that as a background now, let's move on to Joshua chapter 12. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 12. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, that's page 254. Joshua chapter 12. These are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and whose land they took possession. Across the Yarden, the Jordan, from the east and from the Arnon Valley to Mount Hermon and all the Arabah eastward. Sichon, king of the Amori, the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon and ruled the territory that includes Aroer on the edge of the Arnon Valley, the middle of the valley, half of Gilead to the Yavok River, which forms the border with the people of Ammon. The Arabah to Lake Kinneret eastward and to the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, eastward, by the way, of Beit Yeshimot and on the south under the slopes of Pisgah. This was also the territory of Og, king of Bashan, who belonged to the remnant of the Rephaim. He lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrei, and he ruled Mount Hermon, Salka, all Bashan to the, norder, to the border with the Geshuri and the Machati and half of Gilead to its border with Sichon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of Adonai, with the people of Israel, defeated them. And Moses, the servant of Adonai, gave it to, to the uh, Reuveni, the Reubenites, then Gadi, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh as their possession. Now following are the kings of the land whom Yahshua, Joshua, with the people of Israel, defeated in the area west of the Yarden between Baal Gad and the Lebanon Valley and the bare mountain that goes up to Seir. Joshua gave this land 
inhabited by the Hitti, the Amori, the Kenani, the Parisi, the Hivi, and the Yavusi to the tribes of Israel to possess according to their divisions in the hills, the Shephelah, the Arabah, and the mountain slopes, the desert, and the Negev. The king of Jericho, the king of Ai by Bethel, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, the king of Gezer, the king of Debar, the king of Gedar, the king of Hormah, the king of Arad, the king of Libna, the king of Ajalam, the king of Makedah, the king of Beit El, the king of Tapuach, the king of Hefer, the king of Afech, the king of Sharon, the king of Madon, the king of Hatzor, the king of Shimron Moron, the king of Achshaf, the king of Ta'anach, the king of Megiddo, the king of Kadesh, the king of Yochanam and Carmel, the king of Dor in the region of Dor, the king of Goyim in the Gilgal, and the king of Tirzah, making a total of 31 kings. Well, chapter 12 is divided into two distinct divisions. Verses 1 through 6 and then 7 through 24. And that division is essentially marked by the Jordan River. Okay. The first six verses speak of Moses leading to take the land of Israel that's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And then from verse 7 on, it speaks of Joshua's victories on the western side of the Jordan River. So this is more or less a State of the Union address that defines where Israel stood as a nation at this point in history. And it does it by explaining it in geographic terms. What part of the land of Canaan they took and by default what part they didn't. Now we have to always remember that what the first six verses describe is not part of the promised land. It's the land that the Lord instead allowed the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh to have instead of their natural inheritance inside the land of Canaan. Now, it's not clear why the Lord permitted this. But it is clear why these two and a half Israelite tribes preferred land in the Transjordan to land inside Canaan. It was beautiful, fertile, already conquered. Plus, each tribe would receive quite a large territory for its own. I mean, let's face it. From a purely mathematical and practical viewpoint, the land of Canaan wasn't all that big. To divide it up into twelfths would would make each tract pretty small. By these two and a half tribes accepting their land in another place entirely... That, gave, that both gave them bigger territories and it meant the land of Canaan would be divided up into ten parts instead of twelve. So, setting the theological implications aside, that arrangement seemed to be a win-win 
for everybody concerned. Now, as for the land on the east side of the Jordan River, this section basically explains that it runs from the River Arnon in the south up to Mount Hermon in the north. And the River Arnon is a more or less natural boundary that separated the kingdom of Sehon, which was up in here, from Moab, which was down here. Now, Mount Hermon is a primary source of water. Forms the headwaters, basically, for the Jordan River as a result of its almost 10,000 foot elevation and the resultant annual snowpack, and then it's melt-off. Well, now that the north-south boundary is established, verse 3 gives us the east-west boundary of the the Transjordan, or more accurately, the, the western boundary. The east isn't given in this. The western boundary is that Jordan River Valley. Northern boundary, Mount Hermon. Southern boundary, Mount Ornon. And it says that it's its boundary runs from the Kinneret down to the Dead Sea. Well, the Kinneret is another name for the, it's the earliest name for the Sea of Galilee. Right. And in verse 4, the matter of the kingdom of Og, which was up here, is brought up. Og was the king that ruled over a kingdom called Bashan, north of Sihon. And and this is some of the most fertile, prime field and pasture land in the Middle East. And so it was always a territory that was hotly contested and desired by surrounding nations. Now, Israel struggled mightily to maintain control over it and really only had thorough sovereignty over it during the time of the kings David and Solomon. Now, here we're reminded that King Og was of a race of people called the Rephaim. Now, this is something you should be familiar with by now. Okay? The Rephaim were unusual, an unusually big and tall people. Okay? At times called giants, all right? particularly in the Greek translations of the Bible. Okay? Now, the Rephaim were scattered and they didn't live together as a nation. Rather, they tended to rise to power in various nations and or become their legendary warriors. Goliath was a Rephaim. Now, the idea behind these passages is that Moses set the example for Joshua to follow. He conquered land. So, it's an easy transition into verse 7 whereby we have Joshua do the same thing as Moses did by Joshua conquering the actual promised land. And um, the first verse makes it clear that this promised land is to be considered the land that's west of this north-south boundary. And that boundary, of course, is what? Jordan River. So it's the land west of it. Now, there are a couple of interesting differences between how Moses went about doing things and what Joshua did. 
First is what we've already covered. Moses conquered land that was not the promised land. Second is that Moses assigned land to Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. And this generally according to what they had requested of him. Joshua, on the other hand, distributed land on the west side by lots. And the drawing of the lots had already been accomplished. Even up to this point, the land had not yet officially been assigned to each tribe. Now, the area of the promised land is given in a, gener- in a generality. From Baal Gad, which is up here, up here in this area, up in the north, from the Lebanon. And by the way, yes, that's the same Lebanon that we talk about today. Right? All the way down to Seir, way to the south, right? which is also known as Edom. Right? Then to define the east-west boundary, it speaks of the hills that rise up above the Jordan Valley. Many of you have been with me as we've traveled the road along there. And you've got the Jordan Valley on your left as you're traveling south. And you've got the hills rising up to the north. That's what it's talking about. Right. And then, um, then they go down on the other side to what they call the Shephelah, which is in this area. Right. Then it turns on down to the Mediterranean coastal plain. And so, from this long list of cities that Joshua conquered in Canaan, we see that it's done in the order of their taking. So it begins with Jericho. And then I. And then the last to be taken was someplace called Tirzah. And it's key to notice that if we plotted these cities on a map, and truthfully not all these places are identifiable today, okay, that they would be mostly in an area that the world calls the West Bank. Kind of interesting. It's ironic, is it not, that the area that the Arab nations insist is theirs, and frankly, that that Israel is largely willing to concede, is in fact the very heart of the promised land and was the foundation of the kingdom of God that Joshua had taken in battle, and they want to give it back. Now, warfare in battle is not Israel's nature. Her natural state is to live at peace in the land the Lord has given her. But on this planet, during this phase in the world's existence, only battle can attain the peace Israel wants and the Lord wants for her. Now that Israel has conquered, the land must be divided up among the people and so that's about to happen here now once that is done Israel finally has a full and complete identity a people set apart for God living in a land set apart for God now let me point out something that might not yet be apparent to you everything that led up to this moment in Israel's history pointed towards the distribution of land among God's people. Conquering the land is one thing. 
What is done with that land after it's conquered is quite another. Okay. Joshua was to divide up that land and give it to the people. Joshua was not to own it or to personally control it as Israel's leader. Now, s- such a procedure was generally unknown in history up to that time. Okay. For a king or a potentate to have an enormous army capable of overthrowing entire regions meant that he already had a large and established center of civilization. He had headquarters for control and operation. He had fields to grow food for his army. He had a tax base to collect money to buy supplies for his soldiers. Foundries with thousands of craftsmen to fashion weapons and established, well-trained, and a well-organized military leadership. Israel had none of this. And for those who accept Israel's exodus from Egypt and even their conquering of Canaan, but look for natural reasons for their success and thus do not accept the reality of miracles, then this one really goes unexplainable. How can a wandering horde of people with no country, a people with no fields for food, no foundries for weapon making, not even a center of civilization, have the wherewithal to be an unstoppable conquering force over a substantial region of multiple kingdoms that were well entrenched, well defended, well funded, and many of them had sizable standing armies. Answer, it can't happen except by the hand of the Almighty. Now further, when a king conquered territory, it was meant for anything but the people. Rather, it was his. It was his to satisfy his personal ambitions, his lust for power. The people merely lived by his leave in his land. It's not that the people in this king's land didn't own farmlands and businesses and so on. It's that the nation as a whole belonged to the king. Yet God's plan for Israel was revolutionary. No ruler would own the land. No ruler would control that nation. Rather, the land would be divided up according to tribe and then the tribal leader would divvy up his portion according to the clans that together formed his tribe. The Israelite tribal prince was called a Nasi, a chieftain, not a king. He was not royalty. He was the head, the patriarch of a very large extended family called a tribe. His first duty was to be responsible for his people's well-being. He was their father, and he was to behave that way. Just as Moses set the example for Joshua, Joshua was to have been the example for all of Israel's future leaders to follow. They were not to be kings. They were to be a council of equals, a confederation of tribes, who had come from the loins of a single earthly father, Jacob called Israel. 
their loyalty was not to be to a king. It was to be to their God. Okay. Now, just as with the pagan world, it was a king who ultimately owned the nation and thus all the land of that nation. So it was Yehovah God of Israel who was the true king of Israel. And thus he owned the nation of Israel and, of course, all the land he had given to the Israelites to possess, not to own. Well, with this history and understanding, we can begin to see why it is that the Lord did not want Israel to have an earthly king. Introducing such a concept into Israelite society changed the entire dynamic of God's relationship with his people and the people's relationship with their leader. You know, a king must have the loyalty of his people. But in God's plan for Israel, all their loyalty was to be towards him. With the advent of a human king, the people's loyalty would necessarily be a divided loyalty between the God of Israel and the king of Israel. If a human king was going to be effective in this present world, he had to have the loyalty and obedience of his people. Saul, the first king of Israel, was a poor king. Really had no idea how to govern as a king. David was a pretty good king. Provided strong leadership, but he was hardly ideal. Solomon was not nearly as good as his father, David. But he cared deeply for the people and he loved God. Solomon consolidated his power, instituted heavy taxes, and he worked very hard to create alliances with all of his neighbors. Someday when we get to the narratives about the kings of Israel and we study King Solomon, I'm going to show you something that most Jews but few Christians understand. The the biblical narratives about Solomon were designed to demonstrate that he was a poor king that did not follow Torah and the ways of the Lord. But every step of the way, each king of Israel in succession demanded more and more from the people and gave less and less to the people. In time, some of these kings even started feeling jealous of any loyalty that the people of Israel had to their God. And so he introduced false gods to try and destroy their connection with the God of Israel. Who owns the land is everything, especially when it comes to Israel. Who the people give their loyalty to is everything especially when it comes to Israel and those grafted into Israel, believers. I told you last time that the coming battle of Armageddon is literally, not figuratively, literally the final battle for the land of Canaan that Joshua and then all future leaders of Israel never accomplished. And with the taking of that land will come the taking of the whole world 
by the Messiah. God will once again be king, as was always intended, and no purely human king will ever again rule on this planet. And all this stems from the time of Joshua. Let's move on to chapter 13. Now Joshua was old. The years had taken their toll. And Adonai said to him, you're old. The years have taken their toll. But there's a great deal of land to be possessed. This is the land that still remains. All the regions of the Pelishtim, the Philistines, and all the Geshuri from the Shechor, which fronts Egypt to the border of Akron, northward from there the land is considered as belonging to the Canaanites. That is, the territory of the rulers pardon me, of the Philistines in Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gat, and Akron, also the Avim to the south, all the land of the Canaanites, the Merah, which belongs to the Zidonim, as far as Afek and to the border with the Amorai the land of the Gidli, all the Lebanon eastward from Baal Gad at the foot of Mount Hermon to the entrance to Hamat. As for the inhabitants of the hills between the Lebanon and Misrephot Mayim, that is, all the Sidonites, okay, I myself will expel them ahead of the people of Israel. All you have to do is assign it to Israel as an inheritance as I've ordered you. So now, divide this land as an inheritance for the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With the half-tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses had given them, beyond the Jordan eastward, just as Moses the servant of Adonai had given them. From Aroer, on the edge of the Arnon Valley, the city in the middle of the valley, all the plateau between Medvah and Devon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorai, who ruled in Heshbon, to the border of the people of Ammon and Gilead, the territory of the Geshuri and the Mahati, all Mount Hermon, all Bashan as far as Salcha, that is, all the kingdom of Og in Bashan who ruled in Ashtaroth and Edrei. Og was one of those remaining from the Rephaim who Moses defeated and expelled. However, the people of Israel expelled neither the Geshuri nor the Mahati with the consequence that the Geshur and the Machat have lived among Israel to this day. Only the tribe of Levi did Moses give no inheritance, because the offerings made by fire for Adonai, the God of Israel, are its inheritance, as Adonai had said to Moses. Now Moses gave land to the tribe of the descendants of Reuben by its clans, their territory included Aroer on the edge of the Arnon Valley, the city in the middle of the valley, all the plateau near Metvah, Heshbon and its villages on the plateau, Devon, Bamat Baal, Beit Baal Mon, Yahatz, Kedemot, Mephaat, Kiryat Tayim, Siva, Seret Shachar on the top of the valley, Beit Peor on the slopes of Pisgah, Beit Yeshemot, and all the cities of the plateau. 
all the kingdoms of Sihon, king of Amorai, who ruled in Heshbon. Now Moses defeated him with the chiefs, chiefs of Midian, along with Evi, Rechem, Sur, Hur, and Revah, the princes of Sihon, who, who lived in that land. Now along with the others, the people of Israel killed with the sword. They also struck down Balaam, the son of Bor, who practiced divination. And the Jordan formed the border for the descendants of the Reubenites. This was the inheritance of the descendants of Reuben by clans with its cities and villages. Now Moses gave the land to the tribe of the Gad, to the descendants of Gad by clans. And their territory included Yasser, all the cities of Gilead, half the land of the people of Ammon as far as the Aroer fronting Rabbah, that is, from Heshbon to Ramot Mitzpah and to Betonim, and from Machana Yaim to the border of Litfur. While in the valley it included Beit Haram, Beit Nimrah, Sukkot, and Saphon. In other words, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon. With the Jordan to the far end of Lake Kinneret as its border, their territory extended eastward. This is the inheritance of the descendants of Gad by clans, with its cities and villages. Now Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was for the half-tribe of the descendants of Manasseh by clans. Their territory included Machanaim and all of Bashan, that is, all the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, all the villages of Yair and Bashan, 60 cities, half of Gilead and Ashtaroth and Adrei, and the cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. And all this was for the descendants of Machir, the son of Manasseh, or rather, for half of the descendants of Machir by clans. These are the inheritances which Moses distributed in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan and Jericho, eastward. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. Adonai, the God of Israel, is their inheritance, as he told them. Well, the first verse essentially gives us the reason that the Lord was telling Joshua to distribute the land they had conquered. Joshua was old. Joshua was one of the two spies, the other being Caleb, Caleb, we usually say, who had ventured along with ten others into Canaan to scout it out. But then they came back with a good report, while the other ten recommended caution and even trying to find somewhere else to call home. Okay. Therefore, Joshua was indeed pretty old. Somewhere between his early 80s and perhaps 90-ish by this time. Not only that, unlike where we read in Deuteronomy that Moses was as strong when he died as he was many years earlier, here we read that age had taken its toll on Joshua. You know, Moses wasn't a warrior. Joshua was. Joshua fought in many battles. He lived a dangerous and hard life. Okay? You don't fight as much as Joshua had without stress affecting you. Right? And without a litany of battle wounds. Joshua had been used and used up. There is an unspoken but fairly obvious 
reality in play here. Since the order from Yehovah was to conquer all of Canaan, and by no means had that been accomplished, Joshua probably wasn't mentally prepared to divide that land up just yet. This was not rebellion from Joshua. It was just reasonable logic. Okay. The, the, the Lord wanted Joshua to be the one to supervise the division of the land. So with Joshua feeling the effects of old age, the father wanted this done sooner than later, lest Joshua die before the land allotment was accomplished. Further, Jehovah wanted whatever portion of the land that Israel did hold to be divided up as is. And the Lord would, in his time, Take care of the remainder. Now, the last half of this first verse brings us to the purpose of my comment at the beginning of this lesson regarding generalizations. It says, but there is yet a great deal of land yet to be possessed. See, this modifies the words spoken at the end of Joshua chapter 11, verse 23, that says, Joshua took the whole land. That is, we have Joshua taking the whole land and then a few paragraphs later saying, well, there's a lot left to be taken. Okay? See, this doesn't jibe until we better understand the biblical Hebrew style. Okay? After the comment, after that comment, the writer of Joshua, often called the compiler, by the way, since he is both anonymous and very obviously he used several sources to piece together the whole account of the conquest of first southern and then northern Canaan, he goes on to begin adding nuances and then better defining the overall situation concerning the land. Now, one of the questions that can be reasonably asked is why all this somewhat redundant information about the borders and the boundaries of the various land taken and then what land will be given to each tribe is again presented to us. Okay. The answer, answer is actually simpler than it might seem. Okay. Anyone who's purchased a home and recorded the deed knows that you receive a document that's called a, a property description along with it. Okay. This property description uses several legal terms to give a precise definition of the property in question. Starting with the state, to the city, to the zip code, to the street address, the length, the width, down to the inch, latitude, longitude. Okay. The purpose is to remove any doubt as to precisely who owns that piece of land and precisely what constitutes the land in question. Okay. Well, none of those modern devices were available in the biblical era. Rivers wells, dried up streams, well-known landmarks like a large tree or a cave or a rock, a prominent rock outcropping, the name of a king who ruled over a pertinent area. These were the primary ways to describe property in those days. And it worked quite well. Okay. Land disputes were common then as they are now. And these long narrative descriptions of the property were what was needed to solve most of these land disputes. 
The problem is that over hundreds and thousands of years, rivers move. They cease to exist. Landmarks disappear. Local cities are destroyed and renamed. Kings change with regularity. And the record of the names of previous kings are often lost or intentionally modified in order to discredit a king who might have come into disfavor. So, def defining exactly what, where a piece of property dating back into biblical times was located can be daunting. And at times it can be impossible. So, verse 2 speaks of one rather infamous region of Canaan that Joshua did not conquer. The land of the Pilshtim, the Philistines. Now, let me remind you, it's right up here on the map, let me remind you of this rather interesting fact that the word Palestine is simply Greek for Philistine or Philistia. Okay. And this verse makes it clear that the Israelites had no luck in taking Philistia. The region that was defined as associated with the Philistines is from the Wadi of Egypt, which is down in this area, right, in the south, to the border of Ekron up in the north. Right. And then it goes on to name five major city-states that made up Philistia. Right. Gaza, yeah, that Gaza. Okay. Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gat, and Akron. Now, the area lies, of course, right along the Mediterranean coast here. Right. right next to the Mediterranean Sea. It's a long, narrow strip of land that suited this group of people that were called the Sea Peoples before they were known as the Philistines. Okay. Now, while nothing has been 100% proved, the body of evidence today points towards the Sea Peoples as having come from way out in the Mediterranean from the area of Crete and terrorizing and then colonizing areas as far south as Egypt, all right, as far north and east as modern-day Istanbul. And it's noticeable that today, or rather notable that today, that a lot of people mistakenly think that the Gaza Strip is the ancient location of Philistia, the Philistines. It's not so. Okay. In fact, Gaza City was the southernmost city for the Philistines in ancient times. And today, Gaza City um, is the northernmost city of the Gaza Strip. Right. Ashdod and Ashkelon. Right, here's Ashdod, right up in here. Ashdod and Ashkelon are well north of Gaza City, and those places are firmly in Israel's hands today. Matter of fact, Rabbi Baruch lives there. Okay. The exact locations of Gath and Akron are hotly debated. Now, Philistia had an ally at their southern border. All right. They were called the Geshurites. And these Geshurites were a minor power, and thus they operated in concert with the much more powerful Philistines, such that even the territory that the Geshurites 
occupied was simply generalized eventually in Bible speak as being part of Philistia. Technically, Philistia proper ended at Gaza, Gaza City in, in ancient times. Right? And then the land of the Geshurites began and went further south and continued on down to what's called that famous Wadi of Egypt. Right? Well, the, 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 the mention now of a people called the Avim is thought to be cur- uh, referring to a remnant of the former inhabitants of the area Philistia now occupied. So here we have a pretty well-defined area that lies along the seacoast, beginning in the upper Sinai with the Wadi of Egypt down here somewhere, right? and then extending a little south of the modern city of Ashdod, being dominated by some people called the Philistines. Right? And this is but one of three major regions that Joshua did not conquer. By the way, modern Ashdod is not the same place as ancient Ashdod. Okay, modern, ancient Ashdod is about three miles or so southwest of the modern city of Ashdod. Well, the next major unconquered region is the northern seacoast of Canaan that's better known as Phoenicia. Oh, let's see. I got the right slide up here. Whoop. No, let's come back here. Phoenicia, sorry. Phoenicia's way up to the north. And again, notice that for some reason, the Israelites at the time of Joshua either did not undertake the task or they failed to take the seacoast regions for some reason. Okay? Even though the word Phoenicia is actually not mentioned in our scriptures where we just read, okay? instead we see the word Sidonians. Right? That's because Sidon was the capital city of Phoenicia. Right? And being the seat of government, it was common to speak of the residents of Sidon in a more general way and at times ascribe their name to all of Phoenicia, even though technically that's not correct. Now, give you an example of what I mean from that. Okay. I'm originally from Southern California. Okay. And even though I lived in various tiny beach areas from Manhattan Beach all the way south to Huntington Beach, if a person who I knew was not terribly familiar with the area and they asked me where I, I'm from, I'd just say L.A., most people wouldn't really know where these small beach cities were if I'd given them the actual beach city I lived in. Okay. Los Angeles City actually isn't even all that big of a land area itself. Right. But it is such a no-name, it's the power center of Southern California, that it's just best to answer the question of where you're from if you're living anywhere in that area to say L.A. Okay. It's the same with the people was calling the people of Phoenicia Sidonians because the grand city of Sidon was such a known place at that time. Now, the third unconquered region is described beginning in verse 5. And it begins just above Sidon, probably at a place called Biblos, right up here. And then it stretches eastward. 
And Lebanon refers to the mountain range in the western part of Canaan that's next to Phoenicia and is definitely part of the land promised to Israel. So now we have a lay of the land. Okay. In general, the mountain and desert regions of Israel, beginning at the Jordan River and moving westward, were captured by Joshua, but not as far as the Mediterranean Sea. The coast and all the coastal plain along the land of Canaan, from the upper Sinai to the south, all the way up to the Lebanon in the north, remained in the hands of the enemy. So in verse 6, the Lord makes it clear that despite Israel holding only some of the territory, they were to immediately divide it up among the nine and a half tribes for their inheritance. God says that he will in time expel those remaining people. So let's be clear what's happening. Joshua is old and tired. His fighting days are pretty much at an end. The Lord is saying to Joshua, to Israel, and to future generations not to worry. Joshua, the anointed warrior, may soon be gone, but God will remain with the people and continue on with his plan. Joshua's final task is not going to be of war, but of the distribution of the land that's already been won by war. Now, verse 7 emphasizes that the land conquered by Joshua is only for the nine and a half tribes because the other two and a half have already received their land allotment by their own request outside of the promised land on the east side of the Jordan River. Starting with verse 8, after the overall territory that was now in the hands of Israel, uh, including the land on both the east and west sides of the Jordan, the Israelite tribes start being mentioned as associated with certain territories within these lands. Reuben, Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, are officially certified as having their land assigned to them by means of more or less repeating those same boundaries again. However, it is also mentioned that they didn't conquer all the land of Og and Sihon. It says that the Geshurites and the Machites, which lived way up here, right, were not driven out. Now, we just talked about the Geshurites as being associated with the Philistines on the coast. This is a different group of Geshurites that lived far in the north country and on the east side of the Jordan. Now, what interests me is the portion of this verse that says the people lived among Israel to this day. Understand, this does not mean that these uh, Geshurites and Mahites were assimilated. They were not. Rather, it means these two large people groups kept their independence, but generally speaking, they lived side by side with Israel. By all rights, the Geshurites living near Israel to the north would have been okay with the Lord if they did so in peace. Israel was to try and make peace with nations outside the land of Canaan as opposed to the requirement to drive out or kill all the inhabitants inside the land of Canaan. And the northern Geshurites were most definitely outside of the land of Canaan. However, both the negative tone of the statement and the use of the Hebrew word kereb, 
E-R-E-B, Kereb, makes it clear that these Geshurites live not near Israel, but within their midst. They influenced Israel. They lived intertwined with the half-tribe of Manasseh that lived on the east side of the Jordan. And this was never intended for this exact thing is what would quickly lead to idol worship, intermarriage with pagans, and then eventually Israel's exile for their idolatry and rebellion. We'll continue with Joshua 13 next week.